in Deuteronomy 30, um, a man called Moses is speaking, and in verse 15, look what he says. He says this to God's people. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to walk today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. That was where we started our series. We started with this idea of Moses setting before God's people life and death. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been going through Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and God has set before us life. He said, here's life. Here is blessing. We saw God, the awesome creator, making everything as he spoke by his powerful word. And he made it good, and it was beautiful. And then we saw how God created humanity to be in his image and to, to be at rest with him, to enjoy relationship with God. It was good. Here's life. Choose life. Here's blessing. And we saw how God created a garden and he created a community for humanity to live. It's good. Here's life. But Moses didn't just say, let me set before you life. He also says, I set before you death. Because he wants you to understand. He wants us to understand the choice that we face. He wants us to understand the seriousness of what we're talking. And in Genesis chapter 3, there is a dramatic change. There's a dramatic change. And that, we need to feel that change this afternoon and understand that change. So come with me to Genesis chapter 3 and let's read our passage for today. And you will see what I mean. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the snake, this is Genesis 3, page 5. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What we just read 
is the moment in history when sin entered the world. When sin became a part of the creation that God had made. It's a very significant thing. Now, it's easy for us to kind of write it off as a talking snake, and that's, you know, all the kind of cartoons that come with that, and you know, Adam and Eve with hair in just the right places. You know, it's kind of long, yeah, you know, and uh, all that sort of stuff, right? But to write it off like that would be to miss the significance of what we're reading. This is the moment that sin enters the world. It is a momentous moment in world history. It is a massive thing. And if you've been around church, you'll know that we talk about sin a bit. And lots of us would say, yeah, I, I, I know about sin. We've talked about sin already. We've confessed our sin. We've talked about it. We, but do we really know what it is? Do we see the bigness of what it is? Or oftentimes we just go, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know. But do we really understand it? That's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and dig deeply into what does the Bible actually say about what sin really is. But before we get to that, I want to tell you the punchline. Uh, don't normally do this because normally it's fun to kind of save it at the end and go, boom! <laughs> that sort of thing. But anyway, today I want you to make a punchline. And the punchline is the answer to this question. I don't know if this has ever troubled you. Have you ever wondered how it is that Jesus dying on a cross can pay or deal with or wash away all the sin that his people have committed? What what I mean specifically is how can one man pay for millions of people? How's that work? How's that even fair? Because he's only one man. I mean, even if he's a pretty good man, how does one man pay for everyone? How can that one act impact all of God's people? That seems a bit like weird. How does that work? That's what I want you to see. I want to show you that that one act of Jesus dying on the cross impacts millions of people in just the same way as the one act that we're going to read up in the garden impacts millions of people. One act that has an implication for millions more. And it has to do with, if you want to posh with this, don't worry if you don't, it doesn't matter. We talk about a federal head. We talk about someone who represents many, many others. When Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, took the fruit and disobeyed God, they were acting as representatives for all of humanity who would come after them. Their one act impacted millions. That works there, and it works here too. Christ, when he died on the cross, his one act impacts millions. Okay, let me just, just make sure you, you, you sort of get this point. Um, there's a story in the Bible about David and Goliath. A story about a, a king and a big giant. Well, a giant, big giant. Very tall, scary. Right? Terrifying. Ah, no one will fight Goliath. And Goliath represented all the Philistines, baddies, uh, 
And there's God's people, Israelites, here, but no one here would go and fight Goliath because he's too scary. And so a little boy called David came out, right? David said, Well, I'll go and fight you. And so David goes out, gets his little saying, and gets his little, probably know the story, you may know the story, gets his little saying, kills the giants. Giant said, What do all of God's people say? We won. David's one act impacts all of God's people because he was representing them. He was standing there as their representative. Therefore, if he loses, they lose. If he wins, they win. He is the federal head. He is the representative of all of the people. He is Adam and Eve in the garden. The first man and woman. They stand at the head of all of humanity. If they win, everyone wins. If they lose, everyone loses. It's the way it works. That's why this story is so significant for us. Because what we're going to read is about how sin entered the world, and that has impacted every single one of us since. Because we all follow in the same footsteps as our mum and dad, Adam and Eve. You're going to see as I read this and we go through this, we've all done exactly the same thing. Because when they fell, all of us fell. And we all follow in their footsteps. But the punchline is Christ, okay? Just like it is every week, really. <laughs> the punchline is Jesus, whose one act is the answer to all that we're going to see. So hang on in there. And there's two things that we're going to look at about sin. And I, I hope this will help us to dig deeply into what sin is and to what God wants us to know and to help us to wrap our heads around it. The first is you need to understand that there is a deception. Okay, there is a deception. That's really verses 1 to 5. That's the snake. And then we're going to see that there is a rebellion. And those two words, as you leave this afternoon, uh, you will, there'll be loads of stuff you don't remember. Those are the two, I want you to go away saying, this week, sin means deception and rebellion. That's what it is. And I hope that will then help you this week as you live our lives. So let's start with deception. At the heart of um, sin lies this lie. That's what Genesis 3 shows us. There's a lie. So there's this beautiful garden, and into this world that God has made comes another voice. We're introduced to the snake. Verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on a second. Where's he come from? How come he can talk? Does this not bother you? What's he doing in the garden? And what's his problem? Why is he so awkward? There's so many questions that spring to mind. And at this point in the story, we don't know. We're not told. We're not told who he is, we're not told where he came from, we're just told a snake came along. And a snake who speaks with another voice. Up until this point there has been God the Creator who has spoken his good voice. But now there's a rival voice that comes into the garden. We know, from just looking at this passage, we know that the snake is part of God's creation. He's one of the creatures that God formed. So this is not an external 
kind of Star Wars, the dark side. It's not that. Because the snake is one of the animals that God had made. And it's not until later on in the Bible that you discover the real identity of this snake. As you go through the Bible, you discover that there is this enemy of God. And he takes all sorts of different forms through the Bible. Here he takes the form of snake, but he takes all sorts of different... Sometimes it's a king like Pharaoh in Egypt. Sometimes it's in other ways that he shows himself. And as you go through the Bible, you discover more and more about the fact there is an enemy to God within God's creation, created by God, and yet not created evil, but became evil, an enemy. There is an enemy. And as you get into the Bible, as you go through, you discover that his name is Satan, the devil. It's actually not until Revelation 12 that you get it so clear. In Revelation 12, you can check it later, it says, that ancient serpent, the devil. And you go, that's who it is all the time. We're not told where he came from. We want to know, just like, how did that happen? We don't know. But what we're told is that he's there. The reality of an enemy. And this enemy has one aim in the garden. It is to deceive. That is what he does. He comes to deceive someone opposed to God who exists in this world and is crafty. And he wants to deceive. And so he tells lies. I'm going to try and unpack this now. I'm going to take you through three lies that this snake tells this deception. Let's try and follow this and try and see whether this fits with your experience of living in this world. See if this makes sense of the world that you know. He starts off um, with, a, with an attack. Oops. He starts off with an attack. He comes with a question. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's his opening gap. He doesn't come all guns blazing. Hello, I'm Satan and I hate God and I come to destroy you. No. He just comes to the question, did God really say this? Notice something. It's, it's very subtle. Will you notice this? What does he call God? God. <laughs> now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll see that actually God's name is Yahweh. Lord. That's his relational name. But here it's all God. And what the snake is doing is he's seeking to drive a wedge between God and his people. He's seeking to say to the people, God's mean, isn't he? Did God really put them in his garden and tell you he couldn't eat anything? Is that what God says? I mean, it's like a Bible study question. It's like the first ever focus study. <laughs> Let's not push that too hard. <laughs> Is that what God said? Did God say that? Well, no, God didn't say that. We know what God said because it tells us in chapter 2. God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Whoa, do you see the distortion? 
He's messing with Eve's mind. He's messing with the man and the woman. Did God really say that? Oh, no, no. Did he? No, no, he did. Did he? No. Yes. No, he didn't. And so the woman comes back to the snake. But, no, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden. No, we can. I'm sure God said he could. But he did say, you must not eat fruit from the trees in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Yes, I think that's what he said. It's not what God said. God didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat it. Probably wise not to touch it, but he said. So all the time there's this confusion going on. There's a distortion going on. And he's making the people question God's goodness. Here's the key, right? Here's the lie. The first lie is God is not good. God's not good. He's mean and restrictive. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been tempted to think, actually, God, you're not good? Have you ever been tempted to think, God, you're just horrible to me? You're mean. You stop me doing stuff. You spoil everything. You spoil my life. Have you ever felt anything about that? It's the first way that the enemy came. But we know God's good. Good world he made. The goodness of everything that he made. What should the woman and the man said? I mean, the man is standing with the woman. We'll see that in a minute. What should they have said to the serpent? Shut up, you ridiculous little snake. Our God is good. Our God loves us. Our God has given us this beautiful garden. How dare you? Get back in your place and shut up. That's what they should have said. So they did. They entertained the lie that there was a confusion in their heads. She enters into the conversation and the door is open to confusion. And sometimes, you know, when those conversations go on in our heads, we need to not allow those conversations to go on. Come to the point where we need to speak some truth to silence it. No, God is good. I know He's good. He's good all the time. But that's not the only one. Look what happens next. In verse 4, He says, You will not surely die. The next thing that the serpent does, it, the snake does, is make a disconnection. Let me uh, explain what I mean. What I mean is, the snake says, you will not die. You can eat the fruit and not die. He disconnects the sin from its consequence. You can disobey God and it won't matter. It's okay. So he drives a wedge between God and his people, and then he drives a wedge between sin and its consequence. And he says, just don't worry about it. It'll be fine. There'll be no consequence. If God, if God is really a God of love, if God is so good as all you say, do you think he's really in mind? If we, if you won't die. He won't punish you. He's all talk, no action. He won't follow through on his threat. This makes me um, uh, slightly uncomfortable as a parent. Because actually, parents, if you've ever had a parent, make threats all the time. They, they make a lot of threats. I make a lot of threats. If you don't do this, then this is going to happen. I was walking along the other day, um, 
It was in the middle of summer, like middle of June. Beautiful, hot, sunny day. And there's a kid being really sloppy, like just kicking off. And the mum turned to the child and said, if you don't start behaving, you will not get an Xbox for Christmas. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Christmas! You're using Christmas already! June! You're the best person! <laughs> See, there's no way that she's going to follow through that threat. And I'm standing there going, look, I'm nothing to do with this, I don't know you, but I know you're not going to follow that group. So my guess is that your kid's going to know that too. If there is no consequence to our sin, then why not sin? Who cares? <coughs> and serpents, snakes, second great lie is there's no consequence. You won't die. You can sin, and nothing will happen. You ever experienced anything like that? You ever experienced that sense of I'm going to get away with it. I can get away with this. I can do this and no one will know. I can hide it away. I can pretend it never happened. And anyway, God will forgive me. You know, I know what God's like. He's a good old God. He's nice. Therefore, he's bound to forgive me. And there's a wedge that's stripping between the consequence and the sin. God has said, if you eat this fruit, you will die. It's very interesting. One of the big doctrines, one of the big truths that is under attack all the time in the church is the doctrine of God's judgment. That God doesn't punish sin. You can go to churches not very far from here at all and hear a message that says God will not punish sin. God won't punish you. God's not a God who punishes. He's love. He loves all the time. Of course he'll forgive you. God, God doesn't punish, doesn't matter. Just don't worry about it. That's the snake talking. You hear a preacher say that, they are not preaching truth, they're preaching what the enemy wants you to do. And there are people preaching that very close by, across them. You will die. God does punish sin. He does take it seriously. He's a liar. The enemy is a liar. But then here's the third one. And that is flattery. The enemy comes and flatters. So look what he says in verse 5. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's, knowing good and evil. No, you're not going to die. In fact, listen, this is why God doesn't want you to have it. Because he doesn't want you to have all that he's got. God knows if you eat of it, you're going to be like God. Come on, you, you deserve to have your eyes open. You're special, you're important. Don't let God hold you down. You can do whatever you want. You can have anything. You're being held back. He's a smooth talker, right? He's a great salesman. Have you ever encountered salesmen? You know it's like you meet a salesman. I guarantee the salesmen never do this, right? You never walk into a shop and there's a salesman there. They never say to you, I really hate your jacket. Right? They never. Even if it's a horrible jacket, 
they'll say stuff like, oh, you look terrific. And, and even now, right, as, a, as, a, as an aging man, I'll walk in and people say, uh, you know, they'll say something like, uh, how are you, young man? Why do I say that? I'm not young. Actually, in fact, the next time it happens, I should say, I'm not, I'm not young. How old do you think I am? <laughs> anyway. But there's a flattery, right? There's a flattery. You deserve the best. Could I just get the, uh, the, the value, uh, whatever it is I'm buying? No, sir. You deserve the finest. You don't want to settle for that. A salesman, he's a flatterer, he's a smooth talker. You're being held back. Okay, just to change the image slightly, let's imagine we're in an aeroplane. Uh, it's quite a wide aeroplane. And uh, we're flying, because that's what aeroplanes do, and we're. And then someone comes along and they say to you, do you know what, it's actually quite restrictive being in an aeroplane. You know, you, you don't get a full experience of flying in an aeroplane. If you were to just jump out, you would have an amazing experience. Right? It would be such a buzz. You feel a freedom like you never felt before. You'd be like the wind rushing through your head, your heart would be beating. You'd feel alive like you never felt before. Let me ask you a question. Is that true? Yes. That's what makes it so clever. Because you... That's true. In an aeroplane, it's dull, it's boring. I have to watch films because I'm so bored. You jump out of the plane. You never see skydivers getting out their phone and going, just watch a movie. It's so exciting, so alive. And yet the moment you jump out of the aeroplane, it would dawn on you that you've made a terrible mistake. That's what's so subtle here. Everything the serpent says to the man and woman is true in verse 5. They will have their eyes open. They will be like God, knowing good and evil. We know that because in chapter 3, just pick over verse 22, look what God says. After they've eaten the fruit, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. You see, he was right. The snake was right. This really is. You could jump out of the aeroplane and experience freedom. You could experience a life which you've never experienced it before. Um, when it hurt when I hit the ground, no, 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 you'll be fine. You won't die. See? And we think that we are so important and so special. We think, yes, no, that's right. I should really be God. I should be in charge. I, I do have the right to do it. I deserve to be free. I deserve to do whatever I want. How dare anyone try and tell me? How dare they tell me what to do? How dare they try and keep me in this nasty little airplane just spoiling all of my freedom? I think I'm going to jump. Why shouldn't I? Then I'll be free. <coughs> And I want you to understand that at the heart of sin is a great lie. It is the great lie that God is not good. It is the great lie that sin has no consequence. And it's the great lie that you can be free. All of those things are wrong. 
and you will experience a brief moment of freedom as you fall from the plane until you see the ground hurtling towards you. And you ask anyone who's been living for long enough to experience this for themselves, this is what sin feels like. It promises you freedom. Yes, now I'm free. I've escaped my boring marriage, my rubbish marriage, everything was so miserable. I've chased it. Now I'm free. Actually, it's a lie. So as you go through this week, I want you to remember that sin always lies to you. There is an enemy that is lying, who is offering you stuff that isn't true, who's telling you that God is not good when he is, who's telling you that sin doesn't matter and you can do it and who cares, and who's telling you that you can find freedom. Don't fall for that. And now let's move to the second thing which is rebellion, because it would be a huge mistake to kind of think, well, oh, poor old us, we got deceived. It's not really our fault, we're just victims in this whole thing. No, this text will not allow us to do that. Sin is not merely a deception. It involves a very deliberate and specific choice of the first man and woman. Where does the snake go in verses 6 and 7? He's finished his work. He just stepped back. He's done everything that he needed to do. He's finished his work and now he just lets the man and woman make their choice. Focus shifts from the snake to the people, from the deception to the rebellion. So what is sin? Well, first and foremost, it's crossing a line. It's It's rule-breaking. God gives you a rule, you break it. That's sin. It's pretty straightforward. God only had it, gave them one command. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't like they were going, oh man, I can never remember all these commands. He only gave them one. One command, don't eat from that tree. And they crossed the line. That's what the Bible means when it uses the word transgression. Transgression means crossing a line. Stepping over a line that you've been told not to cross. It is extraordinary how forbidden things look so attractive. Let me show you something. This is something that someone showed to me. This is something that I nicked this from somewhere else. But what does the woman see when she looks at the fruit? She sees that the fruit, verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing, she sees it's good for food and pleasing to the eye. This is how I always pick it, right? The picture of the story. So you've got a plate of biscuits, here they are, and they're all boring, boring, digestive, bad, bad biscuits. And then in the middle, there's one jacket pick. Right? There's one jacket pick. And God says, you can have any of the biscuits, but not that one. And she looks and says, that's good for food and pleasing to the eye. That's completely wrong. How is every fruit in the garden described in chapter 2? Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. They're all Japanese. Every single tree had Jaffa cakes on it. 
There's a huge tray, a plate, a massive tray full of jack plates. And God points at one in the middle and says, you can have any of these, but not that one. <laughs> That's what it is. The only one they want is the one that God forbade. The rule suddenly makes it so much more attractive. This is the problem. And we need to understand the nature of sin. God says, don't do this. And we want to. The famous example of this, um, I can't remember which Christian it is, it's a very well respected, posh English man who wrote a book. And so he's once on a train. And on the window of the train, he said, please do not spit out of the window. And he said, never in my life had I ever considered spitting out of the window. Until that moment. He's like, I really want to spit out of the window. Isn't it funny what sin does? And yet that's the problem. Sin is crossing a line that God says you must not cross. And we feel it so powerfully because it's so attractive to us. God has given us commands. He's given us lines. And he says don't cross these lines. And we, over and over again, do exactly what the man and woman did. We cross the line. So it's rule-breaking, it's crossing a line, but it's more than just that. It's more than just breaking some rules. Because you might rightly say to me, well, breaking a rule, I mean, come on, it's a pretty serious penalty. Death penalty for eating a fruit, that's pretty strong. Okay, that's because there's more going on here. And that is, this is going to stretch our thinking a little bit. It's not just crossing, it's also grabbing. Think again about what the snake offers. The snake says, when you eat that fruit, there are three things. Your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Three things. Those three phrases must all be related together. It's like they're in a bucket. Together. Your eyes being opened, being like God, and knowing good and evil. That is the thing that was being offered. Here we go. It's not about a fruit. It's not about eating the fruit. It's about that. Saying, I want opened eyes, knowing good and evil, being like God. That's what I want. How do those relate to each other? What does it mean to have your eyes open? I mean, in what sense are their eyes closed beforehand? In what sense do they not know good and evil? It can't mean that they didn't know right from wrong, because that would be impossible to give a command. They must have been able to discern right from wrong. They must have known what was right and wrong. There must be something bigger going on here. Okay. Track with this, okay? So try and stick with this. I know it's a warm in here, but try and hang with it. We try and show you what is it about God that means he has open eyes and he knows good and evil. What, how do they relate together? Back in chapter 1 of Genesis, we've got a repeated phrase several times. You get it in verse 4 of chapter 1, the sheet out. God saw that the light was good. 
God sees opened eyes, good. God sees good, and it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. When it says that God saw that it was good, it doesn't mean that God goes, oh, look at that, that's good. It's not that there's something intrinsically good about it. It's that God is the one who has the right to declare, that is good. He defines it as good. His opened eyes, he has the ability, the right, to define and to determine what is good, and therefore what is evil. Because evil is not a thing. Evil is just what is not good. So here is God who has opened eyes to determine what is good. Does that make sense? God has the right to say this is good and this is evil. That's God's verdict. God is the judge. He passes the verdict. He stands and he says that is good. Humanity was created to trust what God said was good. Humanity was created to say, yes, God, this is good. I will enjoy it. But now humanity wants that privilege for themselves. Hey, man, listen, listen. You can have your eyes open. You can know good and evil. You can be like God. You can be the one who says, that's good. I'm going to have that because it's good. And so Eve, in verse 6, saw that the fruit of the tree was good. She is making the decision for herself. She is determining for herself what is good and evil. She is deciding it for herself. No, this is good. God says it's evil. God says I shouldn't. But it's good. And that's what we want for ourselves. This is why in culture we hear it all the time. But why shouldn't I do this? I have the right to have this. How can this be wrong when it feels so right? It feels good, it feels right. That's humanity saying, I'm God. I'm in charge. You see, humanity takes this privilege we storm the throne of God. We grab at the very place of God himself. God is the great creator. And we go running up his face and going, get off your throne. Don Carson calls this the de-godding of God. When we say no, we're in charge. I'll call the shots. I'll decide what's right and wrong. That is why sin is so serious. It's not just because they ate a fruit. It's because they declared war on the God who made That is why sin must be punished with death. Because it's that serious. And every time we experience that voice within us, every time we experience that, how dare God tell me not to do that? How dare God forbid that from me? How dare God not do that? How dare God say that that is wrong? I don't think it's wrong. I think God's wrong. I get it all the time. That's what's going on in Genesis 3. You see it right the way through the Bible. As humanity calls the shots, as humanity declares what it wants to be good, 
In Isaiah 5, God says to his people, Woe to you who say, who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you. That is a terrible thing to do. When there's a beautiful, good creator who's made a beautiful, good world and he's set it up his way and he's given his law, he's given his way of living and we turn around and go, no, you're wrong. Think I'll do it for my way. Think I'll do it for my way. And the tragedy is that as they jump out of the aeroplane, as the wind begins to whistle through their hair, as they begin to say, no, we're free, we're free. The first thing they experience. What's the first thing they experience? What's the first taste of freedom they get? Is shame. That's the deeply shame. Not ashamed of what they've done, ashamed of who they are. Suddenly their nakedness makes them feel uncomfortable. They, they want to cover up, they want to hide from one another. Because now if I judge you and you judge me, now I'm like, oh no, I, when it was no God, it's, it's God, we look to God, but, but, but now we feel deeply uncomfortable. This is sin. Sin is a deception and it's a rebellion. And this one act set in motion all of humanity who follows. We believe the same lie and we rebel in the same way. And the fascinating thing is that although Eve is the, the woman is the prime actor, the man is standing there. At the end of verse 6, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. While all this is going on, the man is just standing there. Like, oh look, we're talking snake. Well, I've never seen you talking snake before. Wake up, you stupid man! Can't you see? The enemy's coming to the garden. The enemy's trying to destroy the good world that God made. Man, he gave you the command. And it was you. He told you not to eat from that tree. Before the woman was created, and it was you. You had the responsibility to protect that garden. You had the responsibility to lead your wife, and you failed, Adam. That is why in the Bible, it is Adam who is responsible. Because Adam was standing right there. And he did nothing. And some of us sin by doing nothing. By just being passive. By just standing around and doing nothing. While other people make terrible choices. This is a tragedy. And this one act set in motion a disaster. But just as we finish, I want to notice the words again in verse 6. She took some fruit and ate it. Those words will continue to be a, a reminder of the guilt of humanity. She took some and ate it. Take and eat. Take and eat. And it will continue to be a reminder of sin, of man's failure until... Jesus will sit with his disciples the night before he dies and he will give them bread and he will say take and eat this. Take it and eat. And in that moment as Jesus offers himself 
to his disciples and says, take and eat this. That is where all the effects of man on his first sin were reversed. As you discover in Christ, in Jesus, this one man, he offers you now, not the fruit of death, but the very bread of life. And he says, take and eat all of you. This is my body which was broken for you. And Jesus went to a cross and his body was broken because sin has consequences. He went to a cross and he died because God does punish sin. Sin is serious. Sin does bring death. And Jesus took it for us at the cross. It all fell on him. So that he can now say to you, take and eat. And today Jesus stretches out his hand and says, eat from me. Don't believe the lie. God is good. He is so good. Trust him. Sin does have consequences. Hate sin. And freedom is found as you take and eat and trust. So let's not mess around with sin. Sin is serious. And I wonder this afternoon, we're going to sing in just a moment. I wonder this afternoon as we sing, as we think about these things, here's my question to kind of rob this home into your heart. Where is the one place that you find yourself saying no to God? Maybe more than one, but where's the one at the moment where you find yourself saying to no God to your life? Where's the one place where you find yourself saying no God? I don't think you are good, actually. I think you are me. I think you're wrong. Where's the one place where you think freedom is going to be found? You're chasing after freedom. Where is that today? Jesus offers you the bread of life and says, take and eat this. And trust me. Don't listen to the lie. Trust me. We're going to sing together. And we're going to sing um, just some words that express in many ways what the man and woman should have said. They should have said, the Lord's my shepherd. I'll not run any less to him. I will trust in you alone. I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. And there are going to be days when it feels really hard to say that. But those are the days where you fight. And when you fail, and we all fail, Christ is still standing there, saying, take a minute, take a minute.